A fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one important thing. One important thing. One important thing. Welcome to the Spiritual Hedgehog Podcast, where we explore the role philosophy and faith play in your daily life. Here are your hosts, Sarah Gardner and Pastor Eric Dahl. So, you know, I thought, I thought one of the things that we'd have to face about with, you know, as you and I talked, and it was a couple, a couple of things running through my head is how, you know, how do we do deal with things in culture when, when it just doesn't, you know, at, you know, take the good things and leave the stuff behind without throwing everything out, you know, as the old saying, big, throwing out the baby at the bat bath water so growing up in, in st louis park i think i've said this to you before i grew up with you know we'd have a jewish holiday and we'd know it 30 percent of the church or the school would be emptied and on major jewish holidays and some of that and we we had holocaust education in our classrooms it was a big part of my middle school experience that really opened my ears up to kind of the anti-Semitism and then even playing soccer. You know, I, I remember I, I was called a kike more than once on the soccer field. One, one time I remember playing Minnetonka and I taken a, I slid tackle the guy and, and he went down and um, got up, get, get off of me, you kike. And I, you know, it was just this sort of startling, you know, not Jewish, but I grew up in St. Louis Park. The other aspect, so I'm thinking, so I learned a lot about anti-Semitism, but ironically did not know that Luther had this really dark, until I hit seminary, this dark side about anti-Semitism. Um, so I think thinking about that experience growing up in St. Louis Park, reading and kind of knowing where, you know, the Holocaust sort of developed then in some of Martin Luther's you know, some of it stemmed from his very teachings, or at least they, they co-opted some of those things. And then everything to thinking about, you know, as today, you know, I think the last thing I sent you was, you know, we can even, we can think about that in, in Islam, we can think about it in all the different world faiths, but also just in culture, how do you not just throw everything out? Like, you used to love Bill Cosby's comedy. And now, is it wrong to listen to it now? Is it wrong to listen to, you know, and, and to laugh at, at it, knowing what we know about his personal life? Did well, the same is being said about great artists, uh, yep. because do you um, throw out the art with the artist uh, yep. because of some uh, improprieties uh, on the artist, maybe not being such a, uh, upstanding human being and yet they've created this incredible art. So, yeah, I think that was kind of this overarching idea of wondering, you know, how do you accept the good without somehow being, um, stained by the negative, or as I put it, uh, in my email to you, how do we draw out the wisdom without drawing out the poison? Uh, right. And that's, that's a nice way to say it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear your experience about um, anti-Semitism because what's, you know, I grew up with the name Ira, which outside of New York City, you don't hear, uh, or Israel, you don't hear the name Ira very often. And yet I was a fifth generation Ira in my family. And there was always this assumption growing up that I was Jewish, even though there was no uh, history of it uh, in our uh, at least known talk about uh, history of it and in fact 
uh, my father was rather disappointed when he got the DNA test results back that said, sorry, you're not Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which, you know, that's a whole nother side conversation about cultural identity versus genetic uh, identity. But anyway, I grew up uh, with this kind of strange relationship between um, always being treated as if I was Jewish and yet my mother uh, had been Catholic. And uh, I remember the first time I went to a Saturday, Saturday evening service at St. Mark's Lutheran Church, and it was near Christmas time, and all these wonderful uh, people were wearing their, their Norwegian and, and Swedish sweaters uh, with reindeers and snowflakes and all this. And I remember introducing myself the very first uh, night there, and uh, I said, hi, my name's Ira. And this person just kind of stepped back and said, wow, what are you doing here? I would expect you to be more at a synagogue. And I'm like, you know, really? <laughs> this <laughs> yeah, day yeah. and age, uh, I, di I didn't know that was, uh, you know, that it, it's still top of mind. And, and you see it in our country right now with yeah. the increased nationalism uh, that it makes me a little concerned about this. And uh, whether I'm Jewish or not Jewish doesn't really matter to me. It's more mm -hmm. about how do we um, grow our uh, acceptance and our love for all faiths and all cultures. Uh, yeah. And, and in, in particular, how do we deal with uh, uh, Luther and, and the, the teachings of, of Lutheranism, which have this wonderful uh, quality about, you know, uh, appealing directly to God without an intermediary mm -hmm. and, and a lot of great things. And yet we also have this dark side. Well, it's, yeah, it's a couple, you know, just as we're talking, a couple of things that, that kind of occurred to me is I remember my first experience really of going, Oh, this is what anti-Semitism is about is I went over to my friend, my best friend that lived across the street from me, he was going to be, you know, moving to Edina. In Edina in Minnesota was, that was known, that's the cake eaters, right? That, and so I was teasing them about moving over, which is also wrong to do, right? You the stereotypical that you do that way. And he goes, yeah, but my mom said, at least I'll be with a bunch of rich Christians instead of a bunch of rich Jews. And I went, Steve, you would have never said that before. What, you know, where is this coming from? And, and there's this deep, seated stuff this this distrust that you just kind of wonder where where it comes from and so i you know i had to i had to do even and people don't always start that way even luther luther didn't start that way he but but it's so he had this huge he thought the reason the jews were getting such a hard time in germany and in the roman empire um was because they had been treated so badly by the Roman Catholic Church at first. And so back in like, I think it was like 1523, he wrote uh, an essay entitled that, I think it's called that Jesus was born a Jew and really saying, hey, you know, they are really our people, the, you know, the same, but it all said kind of, I think his whole thinking was around this idea. And if they only knew the gracious God that we see in Romans and that we see in Ephesians, then, then they would come to Christ and they would be, you know, be Christians as well. Well, 20, literally 20 years later, he wrote the Jews and their lies. And, you know, this is shocking in it's, it's just this venomous 
article that um, he shows cruelty and intolerance and thinking that they have no part in German society or Roman, you know, or uh, society, even in the neighboring communities. He, he was active in trying to get them out of some of the German territories that he was involved with. And you, you wonder what happens, what turns, you know, us to start just focusing one direction. And often I think it's, you know, it's one or one or two people that, that we can, you know, say they're different than us. And then since they're different than us, I'm going to find the negative. And, and then though we, which we can all do, no matter who we're looking at, we can find the negative. And so we see that now in Islam, you know, uh, just this huge, when you talk about nationalism, this huge fear and all these things that Islam is not a peaceful religion. Definitely there are places where it's not, but then we stereotype it to the whole. Well, I, you know, look at Sufism and how peaceful and loving that tradition of Islam is. Uh, but I want to go back to something because I will tell you that my experience um, of, of going into um, church, um, there's every, there's always different seasons and there's different themes and, and, you know, right after uh, Christmas, we get into Lent and we get into kind of this whole preparation for the crucifixion of Christ. And I always remember that there's a couple of sermons that generally come out that every year make me a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. One of which is uh, when Jesus goes into the temple and gets angry at the uh, the, the money changers happening uh, outside the temple and and and, and this idea of um, the corruption of of these um, oh forgive me the, the 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 Jewish leaders the the the, the, the clergy so to speak Sandia yeah, the the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees yeah, yeah. Yep. and and what I find myself wondering is if that becomes the justification the the righteous indignation <laughs> that labels the whole religion based on that one story as being corrupt. And then you go on to the story of, you know, uh, the crucifixion and, and Pontius Pilate asking, you know, do you, do you want him uh, crucified? And, and the, you know, the, the chorus of Jews saying uh, crucify. Him. And yep. I think those two sermons always make me cringe a little uh, because those stories I think get extrapolated and, and, painted with a broad brush as a justification, uh, so to speak, of the superiority of Christianity over um, the Jewish faith. Right. With, right. And, 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 you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because I, I just find myself thinking that every year we revisit mm -hmm. these It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And especially, it's especially true in John's gospel. John's gospel really, there's such a, a tension um, that, that comes out in a language and it's often how things are translated, you know, so, you know, I read that we had um, our local rabbi, rabbi um, and it's, forgive me if, if I'm forgetting our dear rabbi's name in town here, um, came in and was our preacher on Fat Tuesday. This 
but knowing friends stuff, I know in, in sometimes you'll be in conversation and people will find out you're Lutheran if you're talking to rabbis and things. They always will start that that says they're they're a little startled um, and thinking, well, what does that Lutheran? Just like what does it mean that you're Jewish? Where does that take you? But it's a much more cautious, you know, because of our very poor history, at least in Lutheran church. Um, so I've been doing some research on this subject. Actually, uh, just last time I went to a conference on the Gospel of John, Caroline Lewis, my professor um, uh, for that conference, uh, who teaches at Luther Seminary, said, you know, she really thinks we need to change the language on how we refer to this stuff. And said, you know, instead of wherever it says the Jew, not just talking about the Jews, it is talking about the Jew leaders were, and it's really this tension of what's happening of, of God and so much the faith-based, just like I'll go through these and flows. And she said, should not just Jews. In, in fact, think about how we read that. The Jewish leaders were, were discussing instead of the Jews where it's grouped into this big, massive, you know, thought, you know, and the other the, the other thing that's happened is all religions. I think there's a fear that somehow I'm going to be proven wrong. Instead of do I have to offer into this conversation, where where if if being right and wrong in marriage, if if it's all about who is right and who is wrong, it's true in faith practices. It's all about who is right and who and who is wrong. It's going to be a non-starter. Not going to have civil conversation. Not going to learn from one another. We're not going to see that God is much bigger than the tribes that we. So much of religion is, I, I think, be, gets turned into tribalism. Where, um, as we we're talking about nationalism earlier, uh, it gets hooked into this nationalism of we have to be the biggest, the most powerful, and the right ones. And that means if I'm right, somebody else has to be wrong. And so like I was saying, one of the things I will do when I do pre-marriage counseling is I will talk with the couple about you need to give up the idea that somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. And the more you can do that, the more peace you're going to have in your relationship. If, if you realize that the arguments you're getting in, yes, they, there's passion behind that, but the thing that ships it into a danger zone is when you have to try to prove the other person wrong. I think the same thing happens in faith life. I think so often, you know, you grow up and it's part of your identity of who you are. And then as you're exposed to new things, there's that fear factor that enters in um, that says, what if I've been wrong my whole life on all of this? Instead of saying, uh, entering in with that that sense of curiosity that says God has spoken to me through through what I know and and yet God is speaking through other people I hope I hope God's not nearly as judgmental as I can tend to be and so what can I learn how can I grow and take those things from Buddhism from Sufism from from the different branches of Islam, from, you know, uh, my Jewish brothers and sisters and saying there's a depth 
of knowledge in all these great world religions, all these great faiths that, that can speak truth to me and I don't have to enter in some sort of fear. And the, the more I can not worry about having to be right and having to defend myself and just really share where I am in my journey, the better I think my sense of how God is calling me kind of comes out um, and, and how I grow with God expands. Um, well, what's interesting is, is so much about uh, wisdom. And we started this kind of with the premise of how do you draw out the wisdom without drawing out the poison? So the, the primary um, argument, I think, in all wisdom practices is a move towards uh, what's known as non-duality or non-dualism. Yeah. yeah. And dualism is when you have this conflict of right or wrong, this or that, and uh, non-dualism says yes, mm -hmm. uh, in a big capital Y. And I, I think about, for example, one of my favorite um, quotes from the Bible is basically, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, Paul saying that what might be a sin for me might not be for you, what might be a sin for you might not be for me. And, uh, you know, my own experience, for example, I've studied Taoism, and I got to tell you, um, this idea of this universal uh, force that we're all connected to, um, last summer, uh, and throughout, I had a sabbatical last fall, I had a walking meditation practice where every day I would go for a walk. There's this beautiful trail right behind our house. And it's about a three mile round trip. And every day I notice the subtle nuances of change in nature and the trees and the birds. And, and in fact, my wife and I, we love uh, the birds in our yard. We watch birds. And I felt so alive and so connected. I'm like, well, no, yeah, it makes complete sense that Taoism would evolve this thought process because I'm having this experience. It's, and, I, and I tend to look at it as... Uh, is it the longitude and latitude on the, on the globe uh, that all lead to the same North Pole or the same South Pole, that there's just these different worldviews that get us there, so to speak. And it's not one or the other. It's just, um, you know, I really appreciate, for example, and uh, my, my grandmother, when she was 85, gave me a copy of the Dalai Lama book, The Four Noble Truths. Now, my grandmother, um, she listened to Mahalia Jackson. She uh, uh, was singing gospel. She went to church every Sunday. But she also read the Dalai Lama book and passed it on to me and said, this is some really good things that you, ne you need in your life. And in the first chapter, he says, you know, the West thinks they need to adopt the East, but they actually have Jesus. They already have a, a Buddha in their, in their cultural tradition. You don't have to abandon one for the other. And I think of uh, the artist Vic Munoz, who's from Brazil, and he talks about every indigenous culture that gets dominated and converted to some new belief system, they don't abandon their existing system. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can embrace uh, new wisdom, new knowledge, new love, uh, layers of love, so to speak. Uh, and I also think of a, a dear friend of mine who, um, uh, is homosexual who says, you know, and, he, and he's a practicing Roman Catholic and, and he's, you know, Roman Catholic church has not exactly come out and said, Oh, that's, that's welcome here. 
but he has made peace with it saying, you know what, if I'm all, if we're all looking up to God, we don't have time to be looking at each other with judgment. Uh, and I kind of, kind of agree with that. Yeah. No, that, that, well, that's nice. And I, I, I think I'm always amazed when people can do that. Um, somehow they'll, they'll model what their teacher, spiritual teacher has, has said, even in the midst when judgment is being turned against them. So uh, I think, I think about that often, you know, there, there's a reason, you know, that the GLPTQ and on community has struggled with finding that place of acceptance. So back to our question of then how, how do we share? I think we, we always, what I always think about is how do I share the best of what Jesus has to offer? And to me, uh, the best of what Jesus has to offer is love. And so thinking if, if that is true, if, if trying to love better is our, you know, in a sense, my, my pursuit, my personal pursuit is how do I love my, my, my wife better um, each day? Uh, obviously some days I do that well, some days I don't, but I keep trying in some senses because Jesus said, you know, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So obviously there's something to that. If, if all of the commandments can be put into those two things, which I think they can. And I think in some ways all spiritual teachings, great spiritual teachings, kind of end up flowing back into that sense of how, how do we love one another? How do we, and, and how do we love God? Um, and how do we love ourselves then in the midst of that, 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 it's, it's the journey that we take. And I think so gleaning some of that stuff out to always say, you know, what is it that we always hear, Ira, you know, of why, you know, people have left the faith. Well, I've, I read the old Testament and saw the violence and war in there and religion is the cause of all wars. And I always want to say, no, Re religion's always been in the place where those wars have been happening. And, and, um, and they tend to happen when people switch their allegiance away from God and toward nation or toward power or toward one of these other avenues that they think is, is going to, to help them be on top. So it's, yeah, it's, it's curious to me. And, you know, so, so I don't know, how, how do we answer that question? Like to, to kind of return to Luther who on the one hand had these awful, awful things to say and, and really um, the, the Hitler party and the, the German church that developed out of the Hitler party um, quoted Luther and, and gleaned some of this stuff. And yet Luther is also, also the one that said, we are justified by grace through faith, not by what we do, but what God has done. And, and because of that, we do not have to earn our right into heaven that we are already made children of God. Well, what a beautiful thing to say, juxtaposed to this awful stuff where he could be, excuse me, a real ass. Luther was known not to mince words and to really have this edge to him. And he had, foul, you know, I had to, you know, he had foul language that, you know, so it's, it's a struggle. Um, and yet I think if we look at ourselves, look at our own stories. And if people would dismiss us by 
the mistakes that we did at a certain age or the mistakes that we made in certain relationships when, you know, sometimes we even thought we were going in the right direction. You look back and you go, yeah, I really screwed that up. And yet hopefully people can also look at me and say, there's some very loving things about him. There's some, you know, through the saint, you know, to use another Luther phrase, simul justus et peccator, we are simultaneously saint and sinner. The more we can acknowledge and yes, yeah, still be able to name that sinner part, you know, the struggle I have, I mean, if I'm just being honest about it. So like I look at somebody like um, Bill Cosby, who somehow just doesn't seem to be able to see what he did to women as wrong or, you know, that was all consensual or just isn't able to admit to himself. And yet some of his humor and some of the things he has done is have, have, really brought joy to so many people in the past. How do we look at that? How do we name it for what it is? Well, yeah. And, and how do you not paint with too broad a brushstroke to all the, right. the actors and actresses and, and well, just use actors, the generic term, right. And all the production crew, the directors, the writers, et cetera, right. that put their heart and soul into that production. Um, but on the other hand, I find myself going, but there's so much more content out there to embrace that I don't spend a whole lot of time um, thinking yeah. about that, that I don't have a, you know, that going away uh, or, or better yet, that triggering an ongoing conversation um, is probably the best outcome we can yeah. hope for. You know, right. I mean, to me, uh, just the uh, ability to have the conversation. Uh, the Me Too movement was very, very upsetting uh, for me. Uh, in fact, I ended up creating a whole body of work that was in response to it of, of what would equality look like between, between men and women uh, that I had that gallery exhibit about. Um, because, you know, frankly, my friend, you and I are Gen Xers that grew up in that pivotal uh, generation of, uh, changing gender roles yeah. and us having to figure out masculine, feminine, and uh, consent mm -hmm. in, a, uh, in a world where you and I were raised uh, essentially via TV and, and John Wayne movies and yep. uh, this whole different sort of uh, uh, cultural language, uh, much the way uh, the deep South, uh, may still be struggling with, you know, how do you, how do you take the good and, and the bad and separate it out? And it, it, it's probably more like, uh, I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, question. And I think the only way you can get through it is by adopting a personal, uh, philosophical and spiritual lens that is grounded in love, uh, uh, love and acceptance uh, and gratitude um, for the lessons learned, even the painful ones. Yeah. No. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very nice and very well said. I, I think, you know, think about so often, you know, you, you brought up earlier this idea of dual, you know, this dualism that, that, that we try to set this world up is we want to say that's right that's wrong and there's nothing in between and we want to do that then with people too right 
That's and right. We do it with politics. And we do it with politics. That's right. That's wrong. And there's nothing in between. When we know things are much, much, much more complicated than that. Attention. Um, one of the things in my faith tradition that and, and, and yours too is, you know, is that, that idea of saying we need to allow things to be intentional. I mean, there's, I'm sure, I, I think when you think about tension in the art world, there's, there's some stuff you could say about that too, but between light and darkness and how, how do you, it's not just light, it's not just dark. There's a tension there as well. We have a term for it. It's called juxtaposition. And in fact, going back to Aristotle uh, wrote that basically um, a homogenous environment is not a thought provoking one, that it's only the, uh, it's only the heterogeneous environment of great contrast that provokes great thinking and great wisdom. And so uh, we need difference. We need diversity in order to experience significant meaning in life. Uh, you know, we don't know joy without some sorrow. We don't appreciate uh, what we have until we've, we've experienced pain. Um, there's great power and juxtaposition in both our symbolic uh, inner lives as well as in our uh, cultural expressions of it. And so, uh, you know, in, in my studies of, of culture uh, and communication and linguistics, we all operate within multiple subcultures all the time. We jump around and, and we're able to create our identities and form our tribes but those formation of tribes should be based on a positive characteristics not on a differentiation on a negative characteristics and i'll just give you a really funny uh not not funny as, uh, as funny ha huh? but just as an interesting experience when i started riding motorcycles all of a sudden when i'm riding all of a sudden i noticed that every other motorcyclist out there they're quick to put out the, the, the two fingers of keep your, uh, keep your rubber on the road. And there's this, this camaraderie that exists that I have not experienced in a lot of places outside of team athletics mm -hmm. where you just know that, oh, I have something in common about adventure ex experiences related to motorcycle. And I found my tribe. And I'm like, I'm like, yes, this feels really good. But I don't have this sort of, well, I've got to ride a Harley or I need to ride an adventure sport or I need to ride a scrambler. It's like, no, we're all riders. It's like what bike you choose and, and how you go about it, that's your business. But having that experience of feeling like you belong to a tribe is a very positive thing. We all have a strong need to belong. And, and I think that's why we have so many uh, diverse faith communities as well. Mm -hmm. Where I think it becomes problematic is what feels right for me if I think that that's the only way for, that it should be for everybody. And, the, and, and I like to challenge people to think about it in their daily life. Are there people in their lives that try to regulate that there's only one way to do it? And can you, can you imagine what that's like if you escalate that to the really important deep things such as a faith practice and how problematic that becomes? Right. No, and, and we do that. We do that. Sometimes it happens in, in seasons of our life or in development. I mean, there's a time when we have to be more concrete, sequential, and some of us never, you know, grow out of that. Um, and so the question is, is when we are faced with folks that aren't going to be self-reflective, 
how how do we continue to have conversation to nudge and to move without being judgmental from our standpoint in those cases so you know earlier you were talking you know the me too movement have you had the experience i read have you have you taken like one of those movies like let's say 16 candles that we would have watched and you go, oh, I've got I've to show my kid. This was one of the greatest movies. And you plop the thing in and you look at it and you go, that is awful. Or your kids will kind of look at you and go, I can't, I can't believe you see this as acceptable. You know, the, the exploitation of women that happen in some of those things. So even as time and, and, oh, you're being too sensitive. You're being, you know, all those things. No, I think, I think it's good for us to have what was funny for us at the time? Well, this is the culture we grew up in. As you were saying, we grew up, you know, with some of those John Wayne stories oh. and, you know, all of those things. Well, to return. I mean, I go through the list, though. I mean, yeah. we, we saw our world change on TV, too, because yeah. you saw shows like Mary Tyler Moore. Yep. Uh, you saw the Jeffersons. You saw um, uh, what's the one with Archie Bunker, uh, you know. All in the family, yeah. All in the family, and and you can see the direct connection to contemporary shows like Colbert uh, that are just using humor to poke at these cultural issues to reveal the um, to reveal the duality of it and how really it's it's it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've, thinking about these faith journeys, and it's actually kind of right in the question that we're talking about. I do have a book recommendation, just if you're curious. I am. Uh, and maybe you've read it already. Timothy Egan's A Pilgrimage to Eternity. We have a number of people um, that I've been heard, hearing reading this. But he's, it's from Canterbury to Rome in Search of Faith. And he really deconstructs kind of a, you know, here's supposed to be the saint of you know, this, and here's where I've struggled with the Catholic faith, um, you know, and, and some of the issues that have come up there. And he just goes to this journey, and it's actually a, a conversation with a Lutheran pastor that, that helps, helps him come, come back to think about his faith in a little bit of a different way. Um, but I, I recommend the book. I'm about halfway through it. I'll let you know what I think about it when I'm totally done now. But nice, nice. I'll post a couple of books in our show notes too, because uh, you know I, I'm a, a Thomas Merton fan. Yeah. Uh, because I really appreciate the fact that here's a, a Catholic monk that's been granted and encouraged to go out and explore Zen Buddhism. I'm also fascinated with some of the uh, books of Deepak uh, Chopra. Uh, he wrote one about, you know, uh, considering if Jewish, if uh, Jesus was a Buddha, uh, that is incredibly thoroughly researched. Like he's got staff of researchers. Um, and then I, I'm also fascinated with, uh, how, um, I start thinking about the parts of the Bible that got omitted the, the, uh, um, Oh gosh, the uh, what's the, um, the 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 texts that are a little more mystical? Yeah. Uh, what do they call those? The the Gnostic Gospels, <laughs> and thinking about the fact that there are the equivalent of Gnostic Gospels in just about every faith, and I think about the the wisdom and uh, the poetry of Rumi and and Cahil uh, uh, Gibran, for example, uh, and and how many Christian weddings have uh, uh, quotes from 
those poets as part of their cer uh, ceremony. And so like, there's just this wonderful mix uh, of rituals and traditions and wisdom that come from all these different places um, that we only get into trouble if we think in this duality of right or wrong and what's right for me is law for you. Right. Yeah, which is really, you know, what being a child in, in a household where, you know, your, your parents are telling you what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, but, and right, because we have to, there, there's that point, right? Well, somebody's got to lay down the law. And until you realize, there, yeah, there's a point where for keeping safety and things that you, you want to do that. But most of the time we can play. Most of the time we can play with one another to say, what does this speak? It's just, it's, you know, we'll have to do a podcast sometime on, on just thinking about myth and, and, and the truth that is in myth um, and the truth that happens. But, but when, I, when I want to declare something as truth as once and for all, I've got to be careful. I've got to be careful what I mean by that because what I mean by that might be something very different than you mean by that. Um, well, that reminds me of uh, Aristotle and his poetics, yeah. uh, writing about metaphor and that the first term is to the second as the second is to the third as the third is to four. And I'm, I'm butchering because it, it gets into the, the uh, uh, some Greek metaphors that wouldn't make sense today. But basically the idea is that, well, okay, then the first is to the fourth term and you see this gap, this increased gap. And I think a lot of our interpretation of Bible stories and is failing to see the metaphor yeah. that is yeah. teaching a greater truth. And we talk about uh, the challenge uh, in art is that, uh, for example, photography was seen as this purely objective medium, and therefore it couldn't tell any great truth because it couldn't tell a lie. And the idea that the metaphors that are presented through uh, fables and mythology uh, and, and Bible stories uh, are designed to tell a deeper truth than what being limited to the facts uh, would, would allow for. Right. Well, it's right. And the way I would talk about that, you, you know, you look at the Genesis stories and I, the create and you know, I always thought, there's two creation stories. Well, I, I get pushback from some of our Christian brothers and sisters. No, there can't be two, two creation stories in there. No, there's two creation stories that come from two different traditions. It's pretty clear as you can read the Hebrew and, and, and look at those things. And I had a Hebrew teacher that said, we've got to be careful what questions we think our holy words are trying to answer. It's very important to figure out what the question they are trying to answer is. Um, when you are reading scripture, because the Bible, for instance, answers many questions, but it doesn't answer every question we bring to it in every passage that we're bringing, you know, bringing before us. So, for instance, you know, in those two creation stories in Genesis, one of them wants to show God really down and, and earthy and, and, and forming and molding. And the other one, um, God speaks and it happens. So the the fun part to me then in that is what, what are these different traditions trying to answer about God, the God that they're trying to see and understand and move, you know? And so even the different namings of God and all of those things that they, they exist in my very faith background. So yeah, God, like 10 different names for oh, God easily. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you, you know, while there's, you know, some of the basics there, there's Elohim, there's uh, Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, well, that just left me again, but, but Jehovah, there's, yeah. uh, you know, there it's, they're all over the place. And, you know, and then to understand why maybe the Jew, Jewish faith would never write the name of God down because since they don't want to limit God to that. Allah. Yeah. Yeah. Comes. Yeah. And even to understand that our, our very faith shares with Islam, the fact that God promised Ishmael also to make a great nation, not just out of Abraham, but out of Ishmael as well. Well, that's where they take their root. So fun. So you reminded me of something just a moment ago uh, that I always tell my students in my classes is that uh, I'm not here to tell them the answers. I'm here to tell them the questions that they need to discover their own answers to. And I think that so often um, if we tell people our answers and expect them to just accept them, uh, that we're shortchanging people uh, tremendously because uh, it, it denies the fact that we're all individuals. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, mythology brought up a moment ago, and I look at the work of Carl Jung on archetypes and uh, the collective unconscious and this idea that um, there's more than 12, but there are 12 basic archetypes that every human being goes through. And there's two, two ideas about this. One is that we go through stages going from innocent to, to wise. Uh, and, and the other is that we have all 12 in them and it, it's situational and, and thinking about the fact that, Hey, if I'm in a state of emergency, I need to be able to act without a whole lot of thinking. I can't spend time, pontificating and trying to be a sage wisdom, I need to, to respond. And so um, this idea that, that we have all these different facets to our personality that we need in all these different situations, uh, even thinking about, uh, I'll throw a little pop culture at you, I have a piano behind me, it's got 88 keys on it. And there's this movie called The Legend of 1900. Have you seen it? I haven't. I haven't. So it's a, it's it's an allegory, if you will, or it's just a, a a myth of of this character that was a baby that was abandoned on a cruise ship that was raised on the cruise ship, never stepped foot off of the cruise ship, uh, and it went back and forth, Europe to New York, Europe to New York, and he just wouldn't leave the ship, and uh, and they were going to destroy the ship, and that's the conflict point of can you get this guy off the ship. And he says, you know, I, I can, I, I know the length of the ship and I know that a piano has 88 keys and with those 88 keys, I can make infinite music, but I can't deal with the chaos and randomness of, of what's beyond uh, that ship. But just this idea that even if we only had 12 characteristics, it would create an infinite variety of situations and emotions, emotional states of what it means to be a human being. That would make it impossible for there to be one right answer for everybody. Nicely said. Yeah, that's the. What's that movie called again? I need to. The Legend of 1900. It's okay. just a. It's a very uh, sweet uh, uh, mythological type of story that uh, really resonated with me because I think about even 
uh, with photography and teaching photography. Um, there's infinite number of tones in an image, but really uh, we can have to simplify it to about 11 exposure stops uh, uh, of, of possible exposure range. Uh, and then we let everything in between be the gradation. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when we talk about non-duality, we have these detentes, if you will, of different beliefs and different viewpoints, but there's unlimited shades of gray in between each one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, this, we, this conversation could go on and on. I was just thinking about a movie I just watched, but I'll, I'll save that for another time. So that's all right. You brought up 16 candles. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. I will say that I am uh, I am looking forward to eventually seeing the remake of Top Gun. Uh, oh, I know. Me too. <laughs> Who knows when that will end up coming out? But I know that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, they are. <laughs> we, we we have to have some of those for sure. So yeah. Well, good. I, I hope. Fun. Yeah, and I hope uh, as as you always say that people will send their comments in and there's obviously this is a rich thing and uh, a rich conversation that needs to continue and, and will continue and so we do ask that you leave your comments for us and someday we'll maybe even respond to them but we'll see where that goes all right everyone thank you so much for joining us today and, and we look forward to catching you next time on the spiritual hedgehog thank you for joining us today on the spiritual hedgehog for show notes and more information go to www.thespiritualhedgehog.com.